Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm the cabin boy. Hi, cabin boy. Oh, very good. It's a beautiful morning out there. It is indeed. Yeah. Nice wintry morning. It's going to be nice and dry. Good day for final training for the Community Cup, the Recklink Community Cup, which uh, happens next Sunday at Victoria Park in Collingwood. I'm going to do an upfront plug there. You'll be hearing a lot about this in the week ahead, but uh, if you haven't got your tickets yet, Probably should get them. It has sold out in previous years. And, uh, yeah, there's definitely an appetite for it next weekend, our Community Cup. Um, Thank you very much to Tim for wonderful three hours of Vital Bits, six hours, of course, throughout the weekend. I listened to almost the whole show yesterday. Set up in bed with my cup of tea, prepared today's show and listened to Tim. What a luxury. How come you're up so early on a Saturday morning? Oh, just... Because I was. Because you love life. I do. What's not to love? What's not to love, cabin boy? And really, you can't start your weekend without listening to uh, Vital Bits on a Saturday morning. It's just not the right. It's just not right. It's not. So thank you, Tim, very much. Um, Thank you, Andrew, for Soulful Bits. Thank you, Edith, for things to do today. And thank you, Dan, for the Daily Diaries. Uh, Yes, and you can catch Tim next weekend at 6am, both Saturday and Sunday. We've got a massive show today, uh, Cabin Boy. We are hoisting the sails and uh, we are taking a look at a whole bunch of things. It's one of those eclectic eclectic shows. We've got, you know, something for everyone. We are going to be welcoming Rex Hunter, or as we now have to call him, Dr. Rex Hunter. Uh, Rex has just completed his PhD dissertation, taking a look at, this is his, I believe this is his title, Understanding the Gold Rush's Port of Melbourne through Report cluster theory. That sounds amazing because I just thought it, he did, he just rolls in looking like he's a bit of a bum, you know, comes straight from, <laughs> from off a ship or something, and and then I find out he's a doctor. Bloody hell! I know, right? Oh well, I'm excited to hear about that. Rex is excited to tell us. I can tell. <laughs> what is port cluster theory? I've never heard of that before. So, you know, there's always something new to learn on this program. So looking forward to talking to Rex about that. We're then going to have a dive report with Cara Hull. She's back from the warmth of Perth into the depths of, well, not quite depths, but heading into the depths of Melbourne winter. So she's going to talk about, Cara's going to talk about what you can do when you can't dive. So um, give me, she'll give a little appraisal, a little... Um, uh, review of, is that, of uh, Secrets of the Sea 3D, which okay. is on at IMAX. Because when I'm thinking they're not diving, I'm thinking they're crocheting a wetsuit or something <laughs> like that, you know, keeping their hands busy. But no, there's a movie. A, there's a visual image for you. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, lots of other things too. You can connect with your local group. Uh that we, we've talked um, recently about vo- the wonderful volunteer groups. We know many of you are listening right now and the great work that you do in protecting and restoring the coastline and the sea. Uh, and uh, if we have time, Cara will also take a bit of a look back at World Oceans Day, which was during the week, and have a look at what the UN's target of 30 by 30, so that's 30% of the world's oceans protected by 2030, mm-hmm. which is only seven years away. Is that doable? It's close. Yeah. Um, we're then going to across to Flinders and speak with Mary Isles. She's president of the Flinders Community Association about a new pilot paid parking program, lots of P's there, <laughs> announced by the Mornington Peninsula 
uh, Shire Council talking about introducing paid parking at Flinders Pier uh, and a couple of other places in their shire as well and what those implications are, what the locals feel yeah. that those implications are. And, and it's not just for people, you know, ran, you know, and there's nothing, this is a great thing to do, of course, to go down there and park your car yes. and take a walk along the pier and just take in all the majesty. But this... Seems antisocial, doesn't it? Well, you know, what does it mean, for example, for the volunteer groups that go down there and go and clean up a whole lot of litter? The impacts are far reaching, then you more further than you think. Yeah, they're going to have to pay. You know, a voluntary pro, a volunteer, a volunteer. Um, piece of work that is done out of the goodness of their hearts is now going to cost them. So, you know, there's probably quite a few issues and that's just one, lots of issues that need to be teased out. So we'll be speaking with Mary about that. And then to close the show, Jeff Maynard will come in for Soundscapes and uh, continuing, or Soundwaves, continuing this year's theme of Soundwaves Grows Tentacles. And uh, he asks the question, can giant, squishy, soft things really be as threatening as razor-sharp shark's teeth? Yeah. Yeah. So looking forward to talking to Jeff about that. That's our program. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, all right, we've probably got time for one piece of news if you have one, Kevin Boyd. I do. Um, I think- Two weeks ago, I mentioned about the uh, the killer whales, the orcas attacking boats and all that. And uh, I just got a text from Max from uh, Western Beach Boat Club. He sailed down to Hobart probably February and he's not coming back till uh, Christmas. So good on you. Uh, shout out to you, Max. But um, he was sailing across Storm Bay down there in Hobart and an orca passed him more than 50 feet away on the boat. Mm. And he just listened to last the two weeks ah. and he got, he was a little bit nervous about it. Um, yeah. And his wife, Caroline, uh, rang the DSE to kind of report seeing an orca. And they've reported to her that uh, they think it's a bachelor that might be making Tassie his home port. Oh, okay. So uh, we might need to follow that up in the future because uh, I know there are orcas down there, but uh, not not many people cite them, I don't think. No, so. particularly if there's a bit of territory being set up. Maybe. And as I said, he, I think he's a lone bachelor. So, um, yeah, that might be his territorial waters now. So uh, that's pretty exciting for I would Hobart. love to see a version oh, of The Bachelor same. that focuses on orcas. Yeah. That would be fun. I'd watch that. But then again, I would be – I don't think they're man-eaters, are they? I don't think there's any reports of orcas eating people. Uh, Too skinny. No, actually. Yeah. I remember that being commented on in Ningaloo, Ningaloo. Yeah. There have been no reports. So there's this big kind of fear about them in a way and it's unfounded almost. Mm. So, yeah, so keep a look out if you're down there in Storm Bay for the uh, Bachelor. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin Boy. Triple R. Uh, it's very exciting always to welcome Rex Hunter into the Triple R studios. Usually he is our maritime archaeology dive reporter, but today we welcome him in as a recently completed PhD. Now, I can't say graduate, can I yet? But um, Close to it. <laughs> close enough. Good morning, Dr. Rex. Uh, good morning, my lo- loyal subjects. <laughs> <laughs> you can sit down there. <laughs> yeah, can I get off? 
off the ground. Yeah, <laughs> this knee's killing me. Now, this might come as a bit of a surprise to some of our listeners because, you know, you, you come in and you talk about the work that you do off, um, with the Maritime Archaeology Association Victoria, yeah. but this great work that you do, um, what, what you term mowing the lawn, but looking for wrecks in Port Phillip Bay and, and also not just Port Phillip Bay but Western Port and along the Victorian coastline. But when you're not doing that, you've been writing a PhD <laughs> dissertation. Well, yeah, I just like to keep myself busy, otherwise idle hands, you know how the old saying. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to read out your title, Understanding the Gold Rushes Port of Melbourne Through Port Cluster Theory. So should we work backwards from that? What is Port Cluster Theory? Well, Port Cluster Theory is um, it's a mod- fairly modern theory, theoretical framework used to understand modern ports. So we've got like all the major ports of the world need to operate on systems and methods and ways, and port cluster by using port cluster theory, you can see those systems and methods and ways. And I was looking, um, I applied to do a PhD um, through Federation Uni, who took took an, a beaten up old diver on, <laughs> more than happily. And uh, I want to, think, you know, I want to starting when you start a PhD, you have like a thousand different ideas of what you're going to write about, and what you're necessarily think you're going to write about. It's not what you end up writing about. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you intend to write about? Well, what, I was going to write about shipwrecks <laughs> and then... Uh, in a category, like were you going to categorise them? I was or? going to go break up old hulks and their values and that type of thing. And then I end up thinking, you know, gee, you know, Goldbrush, Port Phillip, it's just was this an incredible time, which is 1850, I used 1851 to 1861. I thought, how am I going to understand what happened? You know, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I need a framework to work within. So it gives me markers and then I can use those to then look at um, the, the 1850s. And nobody's ever done this before. So I, I Googled as you do you know, through academia and all those. Port, port theory, and then up pop port cluster theory by um, Elvira Hazendonk and uh, <laughs> Peter de Langen. And I thought, and I started reading their works, and I thought, oh, this is just perfect. This this is going to help me understand. It will form a framework, and I can use these as guides to start looking for industries and uh, events that happened at Melbourne during the eighteen fifties. And then so I was like, well, some of the Things are like the, entre- the role the entrepreneur plays in bringing venture capital into uh, developing ports. There's a uh, competition, is like you, a railway to, into the hinterland. And I started looking at these and, and thought, well, you know, gee, there is, <laughs> there is some, yeah. some, some reason behind this and it, it appears to be working. So I then thought, well, what were the ports of Melbourne? And I've included the Saltwater River and Footscray, and they, although they don't appear in any literature, literature as part of a port, they were ports. So I've included Footscray, Williamstown, uh, Port Melbourne or Sandwich as it was known as then because it was just a sandwich, uh, and the central port of Melbourne. And what I'm arguing is that they developed from individual ports and, you know, just isolated yeah. areas to form its cluster to create competition and the businesses that were, you know, active in promoting the port and making it operate. Okay, so it's 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 out of business competition that these ports have developed. 
yeah, it's in true. a cluster. And is that a consistent thing around the world? Well, was it at that time? Yeah. Well, what, what port cluster theories tells you is that not all ports in modern ports are port clusters. Some of them are just rely on throughput volume. So your ships pull up, containers are unloaded, and they're just whizzed out, and there's, no, there's not the other the infrastructure involved. So all they're doing is just, just hubs for transport, just transport hubs like you get with trucks. And yeah, but back then the port was the entry, the gateway to the, the establishment, wasn't it, like for the towns or whatever? So that was the only way in and out. So everything fanned out from that, did it? Basically, well, basically what Melbourne was in 1849, 1850, it was a rural landscape. It mm. was, if you look at the old uh, lithograph images of Melbourne, you, you would think, well, this is just like a, a hick country yeah. town. And it was. It was just a hick country town with nothing. There wasn't even a bridge across the Yarra River. So you divided. There was, the river was a divide between the north, where Melbourne was settled, and the south. Still is. <laughs> and the west where I live. Yeah. <laughs> so to get to Melbourne, you had to travel like eight nautical miles yeah. up, up the Yarra River and then cut across through what was then called Humbug Reach, ah. which was ran along Footscray Road, yeah. Footscray Dinon Road area. And then it was it was absolutely shocking. You could only get small vessels up uh-huh. up there and into Melbourne. And so you eventually through the cluster theory and, and venture capital, Australia's first steam railway was built from Port Melbourne to, mm-hmm. to Melbourne. So you cut the travelling time, you cut costs because you could deliver, you had to lighter your goods. All your goods were loaded into lighters because the ships were too big to get up up the river to Melbourne. So they were dis- discharged into lighters, which is, yeah. you know, vessels that might be from, you know, five tonnes up to... 200 tonnes. Yeah, yeah. So there's all this added cost to your materials, get your materials to land to um, in Melbourne. So from from going from an eight-mile, you know, nautical mile trip would probably take you a couple of hours at minimum. You could then do within, I think it was a 12-minute journey from from Port Melbourne to um, Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And, and you said you need... Need all, all this infrastructure, so this is where the venture capitalists came in and started. You know, they they put their hands in their pockets, or they go to investors and grab a, get capital together, and they build some new piece of infrastructure, and it all added to building Melbourne up from just a little yeah little hick port. Well, I still remember catching the uh, ferry across from uh, Port Melbourne to Williamstown before the Westgate Bridge was built. So oh, yeah, 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 the old steam ferry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, Gee, you must be old. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't driving across myself. Yeah, I was, <laughs> only a wee little tacker there. But even that changed because of the uh, the infrastructure from yeah. yeah. Well, that was Westgate Bridge that was built to, mm. uh, to get rid of the the ferry, the North Road ferry. Yeah, but all all these other I mean, yeah, ferries were developed. There was the swinging basin at Melbourne, which is where the aquarium is. That was a natural swinging basin. And that was deepened. The Yarra River was deepened and eventually straightened. Yeah. We had, like, um, there was government departments set up to to handle all all this and funds put aside for a dredge because the river hadn't been dredged. Yeah. You know, some places it was only a couple of metres deep. Yeah. Well, even taking a trip up, a boat trip up the Yarra, you know, like the so many uh, little offshoots of uh, ports and all that that are, uh, you know, there's web dock and all that. So that's pretty amazing. And I, yeah. did you get out and 
you know, check all that out too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went out and checked out the landscape. Yeah. Like, oh, and plus, we also had major developments at Williamstown where um, fortifications were built. It was a fort at Williamstown built. There was also one uh, a battery along the um, along from South Melbourne, right along the foreshore. Okay, a series of batteries, uh, and they were for defence purposes. So again, you need you need mm. infrastructure, and you need a, a lighthouse. So they eventually built the um, turn the uh, time ball tower. The one in Williamstown. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was built as a lighthouse, and then it was turned into a time ball tower, so you could check your chronometer. And they had floating lights offshore built. Yeah. So all this stuff needed needed to be put in for the port to, to operate. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I was arguing that the ports did eventually correlate, correlate and co- coalesce into this unit that was uh, the Port of Melbourne. Yeah, because, I mean, even like Corio Bay, Geelong wouldn't have been there because it's only there because it's a safe port, wasn't it? Well, Geelong... There was a big fight between the um, – a big bun fight between Geelong and Melbourne because yeah. Geelong was the most perfect place to have a port except for the bar running across across the mouth. Mm-hmm. So there was huge, huge fights. And it was closer to the goldfields, which is where everybody wanted to get to. Ah. But because the powers – there was more power structure up in Melbourne – Geelong got left behind and yeah. it's been bitter ever since. <laughs> well, they got the Tessie Ferry. <laughs> <laughs> so in a nutshell, that's, that is Port Cluster Theory. I, I mean, I could go on for ages. <laughs> we know. Can we go on to the doctors? Can I talk? <laughs> Unfortunately not, Rex. We've still got three guests lined up to, to speak that's... on today's program. But uh, maybe next time you come in we can explore this one a little bit further because I'm interested in the structure of your thesis itself. So with, with PhDs you'll yeah. normally have it sort of Trapist. segmented yes. into different chapters and then have the whole thing wrapped up with conclusion. Yeah. Um, so I'd be fascinated to sort of break it down a little bit and look at each chapter in turn. If Maybe you possible. could read it out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have readings <laughs> for the next 20 years. <laughs> Excellent. Now, I know that before you leave, there was some something that you wanted to mention. I just wanted to mention acknowledge the um, Jim Anderson. We had him in here. Jim was the first one of the first ship's graveyard divers. <laughs> Unfortunately, Jim uh, had a battle of cancer over two years, which he lost recently. So uh, it was great, great, great loss to all of us. And, you know, we're all... Mm. Got very heavy hearts for Jim. Yeah, sorry to hear that. Dear man. Yep. Dear dog. It was wonderful when he came in. Yes. Yeah. His character. So Valet Jim, indeed. Valet, yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Rex. We'll catch up with you in a few weeks' time. Okay, yeah. I can talk more about uh, what cluster theory. (laughs) Let's do it all year. Why not? This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Something I wanted to mention before we go to our dive report, very exciting news uh, for anyone out there who has enjoyed, and that is an understatement, the great publication that is Great Ocean Quarterly, uh, which uh, we're going to be speaking with Mick Sowry about uh, on next week's program. So uh, this was a publication that um, came out a few years ago, uh, Quarterly, <laughs> as the title suggests, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, and it kind of reached its end. But there's, it's really exciting news. There's a, another edition in the making, and uh, they're taking pre-orders for that now for edition nine. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. But the whole focus of it is on the great site 
Southern Reef cabin boy. Okay, wow. So, uh, yeah, really, really exciting. So I'm just going to leave that one there for now. We'll speak with Mick in detail about this next week. But, um, yeah, uh, just I can't... I can't You're gush. excited. I am. It's, I used to say that Great Ocean Quarterly was like Radio Marinara in print, oh, okay. which it really is. It, yeah, covered, yeah. it covered everything and anything to do with the sea and the yeah. oceans of the world, um, as we do, um, but in print form and in a just a magnificent uh, artistic way. So, um, you know, I was sad when it came to an end, but yeah. super exciting. There's another edition in the making. So, cool. yes, I'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. All right, let's go to our dive report with Cara Hull. Good morning, Cara. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Cumboy. Good morning. Hey. Congratulations to Rex if he's still there on completing his PhD. <laughs> yeah, I think he's actually gone. He's he was all, all very exciting for him. He's gone to gone to have a what, what do we say? Bex and a good lie down. <laughs> you know, he's gone to find out something else about Melbourne's yeah. peers and that. Indeed. <laughs> um, but we're going to catch up with you for a dive report, Carl. Welcome back from sunny Western Australia. Is it a bit of a shock to come back to wintry Melbourne? Uh, a little bit, yes. <laughs> But it's not too bad. I'm just sitting at Bird Rock now. The sun's a little... Oh, yeah, the sun's out, I would say. But, yeah, the waves are up. <laughs> that <laughs> the sounded, water's looking cold. That sounded very hopeful. The sun's out, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you're under the water, it doesn't matter. No, exactly. That's true. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about things that you can do in winter when the diving conditions aren't great. And so uh, let's start with um, this great new pro- um, film that's on at IMAX, Secrets of the C3D, uh, which launched on Wednesday. Um, Wednesday night, I believe yeah. you were there, Cara. Yes, I had the privilege of going to the opening and it was great. And it's such a great thing to take people to if they don't dive. You know, if you're a diver and you want to show people what diving is like, take them down to IMAX, Secrets of the Sea. It's a 45-minute 3D movie. And it's a little bit, it's based on the symbiosis between the critters, all the critters that work together. So, you know, it's a great sort of thing to show people. And, you know, while you're there, pop into the museum because there's a beautiful blue whale and I just learned that it's only a pygmy blue whale, the skeleton. But, you know, what a beautiful thing to go look at and sit there in awe underneath that. Yeah, wonderful. My son went to the uh, screening Wednesday night. He's not a diver, but he said it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty amazing. There's nothing like having a shark in your face, is there? You know, <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially in 3D. <laughs> yeah, while you're sitting in your comfy seat at the museum with a wine. <laughs> I reckon there would have been oh, a few, nice. few uh, spilt drinks when that's coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I know Anthony was there as well, and um, we're ho- hopefully going to chase up an interview with the filmmakers at some point. So there oh, you go. Excellent. So yeah. there you go. That's a wonderful wonderful thing to do. Um, what else can you do, Cara? Well, I mean, there's heaps of things to do, one of them being the museum, obviously. But, I mean, I was, so I've was sort of been looking at this 2030, you know, the marine protected areas that we've signed a UN agreement, Australia has, that we would have 30% marine protected areas by 2030. And, unfortunately, Victoria only has 4% protected so I think it's a little bit of a case, although it's the federal government, you know, where do we stand on that? And should we as Victorians maybe writing to our members of parliament saying that we want more protection in Victoria? You know, close to 30 would be nice. Um, and not just an Australia-wide thing. Um, yeah, <laughs> other things to do, I guess you can, you know, the visual representations, you know, go and have a look at the street arts. Um, there's some great things that, you know, to have a look at with that. Um, jump onto my dive buddy Myra's 
Instagram page. That's another one. If you want to see <laughs> a more of a visual reputation of what diving is like in, in Victoria. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. We've got a bit of homework to do after this program. Um, I wanted to ask you too, we were talking about connecting with many uh, community groups and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago for National uh, Volunteer Day. But uh, yeah. th- there's lots of groups out there protecting and restoring the coast and sea, and, and we talk about them a lot. But I just wanted to ask you from your perspective, Cara, because I know you're you're pretty active in this space. Yeah. Look, I mean, definitely volunteering. I think, you know, during lockdowns and all the rest, it saved my mental health, I can say that for sure. Um, but getting involved in volunteering is a great way to sort of see all the little protected spots as well. You'll find places that you don't normally find. Beach patrol picking up litter. You know, there's so many ways to get involved on the coastlines, protecting them, and the ocean. Yeah. yeah brilliant. How are you going diving today? Or are you sitting this one uh, out? No. We've got a bit of a northerly coming through. Right. <laughs> and it's looking pretty messy and dirty out there. But possibly tomorrow. Um, I think the boats will be going out. Yep. Jump on, you know, a boat that you trust, and they'll know where to go. They know the secret spots to tuck in behind and get out of the wind. Yeah, fantastic. And one great place where you can go when there's a howling northerly is Flinders Pier. So it's a, a really... Good uh, place mm. maybe to end this dive report and set things up for our conversation with Mary Oz in just a moment um, about Flinders Pier. Definitely. Um, yeah. Thanks, Cara, very much for this week's dive report and um, enjoy, your, you. enjoy your cold winter diving. Are you in a dry suit? <laughs> um, I will be tomorrow, I think, yes. Yeah, it's getting pretty cold. <laughs> where, where are we looking yeah. at? Are we still sort of hovering around 13 degrees water temperature or is I... it starting to drop a bit? Um, I haven't been privileged enough to get in this week, but okay. I think it is dropping. Yeah, yeah you expect it would. Okay, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thanks. We'll, we'll catch up with you. Great long weekend. Thank you. You too. We'll catch you soon. Bye. Bye. Cara Hull there with this week's Dive Report. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, Flinders Pier, what is not to love about Flinders Pier, one of Victoria's most loved and iconic coastal structures, one of a few decent dive spots in a howling northerly uh, at Flinders Pier is much loved by divers, snorkelers, swimmers, fishers and sailors alike. And until now, it's always been a place to leave your vehicle for an hour or two without cost and enjoy everything that the pier and local Flinders coastal environment has to offer. But locals have recently become alarmed at news there are plans for Flinders Pier and two regions on the Mornington Peninsula to have the introduction of paid parking. The proposal is now being pitched as, pitched as a pilot, but what does that mean and has anything been proposed as evidence that warrants the change? We're going to begin this conversation by welcoming to Radio Marinara and Triple R, President of the Flinders Community Association, Mary Isles. Good morning, Mary. Welcome. Good morning from sunny Flinders. <laughs> the sun is shining. Uh, yes, lovely to hear. Um, thank you, Mary. Lovely to have you with us. And uh, perhaps for listeners who haven't been to Flinders Pier before, including perhaps people might be streaming from interstate or overseas, can you describe Flinders Pier for us? Well, it's um, it's a dear old pier and we love it, of course. Um, it's a heritage listed and it uh, sits at the bottom of a f- small cliff. Well, I can't really call it a cliff. I'll call it a hill. Um, looking out over Phillip Island and West Head, Flinders is at the tip of the Mornington Peninsula, surrounded by magnificent rural countryside, uh, vineyards, etc. Um, the pier is about a kilometre's walk up the hills to the village, where there are shops, galleries, cafes and restaurants. It's a great dive site, as you mentioned, and lots of families come here to fish off the pier and, of course, enjoy the beach um, sometimes when there's a bit of seaweed on it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mentioned uh, you're the president of Flinders Community Association. What What is your association? What are you all about? 
Um, the association is a, is a membership of um, Flinders residents and we communicate not only with our members but uh, with others through our website and Facebook and all those things. We aim to protect the character of our historic builder, uh, uh, village, not only for our members but others who visit and in the area, um, while we still value its vibrancy, historic um, uh, little buildings which are still available to have a look at and obviously the quality of life for us all and, and visitors. So let's get to, let's cut to the chase here in terms of what's being proposed um, because this this came to us uh, via your group. Uh, what What is being proposed, Mary, and why is this a big issue for your community? Um, well, first of all, we actually only heard about it by accident. So the council did communicate with various people, but in a nutshell, the proposal was passed by council at a meeting, the last council meeting, to set up three pilot paid parking locations in Mount Eliza, Mornington, and, uh, Mornington and Flinders. I can't even say my own village. <laughs> <laughs> at a cost of a um, million dollars. So the pilot is going to cost a million dollars. The pilot effectively is a test. So um, they will uh, test the technology. They will get feedback from the community and visitors um, and then work out whether paid parking on the Mornington Peninsula is something they want to implement. Did you say that the pilot is going to cost a million dollars? Yeah. I'm interested in that and because I was reading in the Mornington um, Peninsula News or whatever the local paper's called, I think it's called that, um, there's a quote from um, the Mornington Mayor, Councillor Steve Holland, saying that the paid parking trial would allow the council to explore opportunities to lessen the financial burden on our ratepayers. So if it's going to cost a million dollars, how is that going to lessen financial burden? Well, um, that's actually one of our primary questions. Um, at the council meeting, we uh, the community submitted up to, I th we think, about 98 public questions to the council. Um, and, of course, a lot of those questions about the costs. So one of our uh, primary concerns is, A, to see, we'd like to see the answers to those 98 questions and more that might be coming in via their website. But we also want to review the consultants' reports that actually um, gives, gives us a better understanding of the financial modelling leading to the decision to proceed with the pilot specifically at Flinders. There are only, there are only um, we count, about 100 car parks. Now, the maths doesn't really add up to make that cost effective. So what, what we would prefer is please don't do it at Flinders. Um, <laughs> do it somewhere else. Um, get all the costs correct. Um, and then when it needs to be implemented, if they really have to implement this paid parking across the peninsula, um, then then maybe they'll be ready to, to, to do it in Flinders. But um, the cost effectiveness for us doesn't stack up until we see the... Um, see their financial modelling. Yeah, there's also that question around financial burden on ratepayers and I can't see how that is going to work unless the council can actually demonstrate an actual reduction in rates as potentially an offset. I, I don't think they'll ever re reduce our <laughs> <No. laughs> It'll never go down. Mary, no, is, it, no, no. is the is it just involving the par the parking around the pier and the seafront uh, precinct yeah. or is it the main street too that they're looking at? Our understanding, and again, on the web on their website, you can see a little map. Yep. It is only at the pier where the, there are those 100 uh, 
100 car parks. Mm-hmm. As, as to the, the reduction in rates, well, they'll never reduce rates. And we know that uh, the council is in trouble at the moment with funding. Costs have gone up 20 to 25%, um, whereas they have a mandate to not increase rates by more than, I think it's 3.5%. So uh, costs are going to go up, and we certainly understand that there is a, there is a view that in inverted commas, visitors should pay. Why should we as residents pay for everything? But um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's an issue with visitors who come from outside Melbourne to the beach. And do we really want any beach, which is a, it's an iconic Australian thing to do, to go to the beach for the day, um, do we really want people to have to pay? I think there's another question too. We were talking earlier about groups. Uh, we've been talking a lot about volunteer groups and the great work that volunteer groups do in giving up their time and going down under piers, along the coastline, cleaning up litter, picking up all kinds of stuff that gets left behind, um, you know, our coastal wombles. And what does that mean for them if they're going to not only go down there and give up their time but actually be literally out of pocket if they're going to go down and do these activities and and effectively do the job that you could argue that maybe a council should be doing? I don't know that I'm going to see a councillor go under the pier. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you'd like to. Yeah, well. <laughs> but there's lots of lots of groups that I, I go. Won't go down, I won't go down that. No. <laughs> you, you know, you, there's the beach patrol groups, there's sea shepherd groups, there's there's lots of coastal volunteer groups, and then there's just then there's great community, just local community groups that are getting yeah. out there and cleaning up their own environment. Are they going to have to pay? Well, that that's again one of our questions. I suppose uh, we are. Uh, uh, sort of two angles are let's look at the financial costings and then let's look at the, you know, who else is going to be impacted? Um, the, the swimmers, the people who do do the cleanups, the volunteers, the school groups. We get a lot of school groups to go and have a look at uh, the underwater activities on the, on the beach. Um, there are also a number of events, of events that are always at the, uh, at the pier, the Pier Topino, um, the Flinders Festival, um, and those other activities which are, um, public events, what's going to happen with the parking. The other thing that's quite important is the actual safety aspect. Um, it's quite a small area. There's no turning circles for trailers with boats. Um, there's quite a steep hill without a proper path. And um, we feel that there is a safety aspect to the whole program. Um, so if they put it in place you know, in the next few months, which they're advocating then maybe that's not such a brilliant idea until those safety aspects have been looked at. Mary, that's a really great note to pause this conversation. I'm not going to say end because we will be following this one through. Uh, in the meantime, if listeners want to find out more or uh, get involved, take part in um, the work that you're doing to draw some more public attention to this, what's the best thing that they can do? Where can they get information? They can get information from uh, two areas, obviously from the Mornington Peninsula uh, site and if they go onto the shape portal they can put in a comment or if you'd like to talk to us at uh, um, flindersvillage.com.au you'll find me there thank you mary very much for joining us um we'll put a link to that on our facebook page if you click on the photo of flinders pier it will take you to some words that will have a link where people can go and get more information thanks so much for joining us it's been great meeting you and uh, we'll follow this one through catch up with you again Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bye for now. Mary Isles, president of Flinders Pier. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You are listening to our final eight minutes of Radio Marinara for this week. It's a great pleasure we welcome into the Triple R studios, Jeff Maynard. Good morning. Good morning, Bron. How are you? Great to I'm, have you with I'm us again. good. I'm asking the big questions today. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the big questions is, should you do a sequel? And um, lots of actors and things, when they say they do a movie, you know, there's a sort of a rule, never never do the sequel. Um, it just it, it isn't. But uh, I'm asking from the point of view of a writer because um, our theme this year on um, sound waves is big tentacles. <laughs> and, and whether big sort of long, squishy calamari things um, are as dangerous as, as a, a shark's teeth and all that sort of stuff. And, are we talking uh, the Kraken? Yes. Oh, Ooh. we're talking the Humboldt. Oh. Te- Humboldt squid, which is, I knew nothing about it until I sort of Googled it last night, but um, I still don't know much about it. Um, <laughs> and, anyway, the, the person that that should not have done the sequel and uh, is Peter Benchley. Now, ah. in 1974, Peter Benchley is an American author and he wrote the book Jaws, which was made a movie a year later, became iconic and... Um, scared the heck out of everybody with big sharks and going in the water and all that kind of thing. And the sad thing for Peter Benchley was he had to keep spending the rest of his life trying to replicate it. Mm. And and um, and 25 years later, he did another book um, called The Beast, which was about a big squid and was supposed to be dangerous. And the movie poster had this sort of tentacles coming up out of the, out of the water towards the boat and all this. Uh, and it was just... Anyway... Um, where am I? Uh, yeah, Peter eventually. I'm looking at my notes. Uh, uh, play track one, and we'll sort of get the idea. Hello, Mr. Dalton. Yeah, this is uh, John Astorbrook from the Portland Zoo. Corbin Jake's cousin. Listen, this uh, this claw you sent us. We've uh, we've studied it here, and well, we don't know what it is, but it sure isn't mammalian. In fact, we're almost positive it came from the sea. You sure? Yeah, from a marine animal of some sort. Yeah, look, if you don't mind, we'd like to send it to uh, Herbert Talley. Herbert Talley? Yeah, he's a marine biologist, one of the best. We'd uh, we'd like him to take a look at it. Okay. Now, that's pretty not dramatic, um, but... It, it's got all. It, it, it kind of replicates Jaws in all the normal things. First of all, you have to have some body washed up on the beach, and no one can figure out it what. And there's a voice of reason in the town who is no Sheriff Brody. Um, he's a guy called Whip Dalton who runs a charter boat, <laughs> and, um, uh, and and he's a widower with a teenage daughter, and he's in a little coastal community saying there's something out there. We have to get people out of the water. There's the scene of get out of the water, get out of the water, all the same old things. Um, the good thing about these movies, you always know when someone's going to die because he's a <laughs> he's a dive boat operator and you always have the smarty pants who knows more than everybody <laughs> and doesn't listen to advice. And in this case, it's a couple of um, young divers who uh, want Whip Dalton to take them out on their boat to some shipwreck. So let's have a listen to track two. It's Mike Sanders and this is Chowder. How you doing? Hi. They're on a shipwreck tour. Yeah, trying to catch all the big ones. Dana and Hadley said you're the local dive guy. Yeah, but they, they want somebody to show them to the, the um, what do you call that thing? The Burnham? The Admiral Burnham? That's a deep dive. Yeah, we know. She starts at 190 feet. And then angles down a slope to 300. We know, we researched it. 
Only the most experienced divers have any business going anywhere near her. Yeah, that's that's us. So we're advanced open water, so. Oh, I'm not interested. We have a lot of great wrecks in Graves Point. Really good 40, 50 foot dives. I'd be happy to take you to any or all of them, but I'm not going to take you to the Admiral Burnham. So they go and get another guy who's no uh, Quint. Remember Quint, Robert Shaw in Jaws? Well, oh, yeah. That there's, there's a, a crusty old guy with a beat-up boat and they go to him and they go out to the wreck, whatever it is, and, of course, they get strangled and eaten by a giant squid. Um, <laughs> is it squid or octopus? A squid. Right. Humboldt squid, oh, apparently, you said that. but yes. giant. But anyway, uh, anyway, uh, Whip Dalton gets onto his marine biologist. Let's have a listen to the person telling them how dangerous this big squishy thing is. <laughs> oh, but you're not telling me a Humboldt squid killed that whale? Not a Humboldt. How about a squid ten times that size? <gasps> oh, get out of here! Ten times that size? That'd have to be fifty, sixty feet long. But if there was a squid that big, can you imagine the damage it would do? Well, yeah, but take a look at this. This came off the Griffin's raft. Imagine a squid with tentacles 30 feet long covered in these things. A giant squid that's just as fast and just as mean as those Humboldt. A squid that big can't be real. I think it's real, and I think it's here. Yeah, sort of, ooh. Um, <laughs> the, the, the other thing that you have to have in the Jaws movie is the town hall meeting where the voice of reason's trying to tell everybody to, you know... Um, don't go in the water and the people in the town have got their touristy day coming up and uh, they don't want to listen. So let's have a listen to the town hall meeting. <laughs> the giant squid is what's called an adventitious eater, which means that whenever its food supply is gone, it will eat whatever it can find. And it must be hungry because it killed a sperm whale and now it's attacking <laughs> us. This is bull and I think we can kill it. How are you going to do that, Lucas? I'll make some depth charges and turn this sucker into cat food. Anything's better than sitting around waiting for this thing to, to go away eventually. Yeah. Good plan. Okay, thank you, Whip. Appreciate your input. Much food for thought there. Oh, God. Uh, you, 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 know, you know what's going to happen. Um, no. Whip has to go out in his boat and the big squid. I, I didn't actually watch the end of it. It was so, it was so, it was so boring. When know. was it made? Uh, it was made in 1998, I think. Oh, because I think we knew enough about They obviously didn't consult with many specialists here, Jeff. Oh, they didn't consult with anybody <laughs> on this one. Because oh, we've got one more track to play, I believe. No, that's it. That's it? That's it. No, okay. we, can, we can just chat away. What do you want to talk about? Well, no, because... How's um, your day been? <laughs> Actually, you I'm don't going want to crap know. in the footy tips this weekend. <laughs> I, I forgot to put mine in. Anyway, uh, um, yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. The movie's called <laughs> The Beast, um, and and Peter Benchley wrote the book, and I think he wrote the screenplay for the movie too. And it was 25 years after Jaws, and and the question uh, a big squishy things as threatening and as violent as sharks. Uh, not this time, but I'll be back with another big squishy movie. Excellent. So don't bother seeing it. No, don't, 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 don't waste the finger energy Googling it on your, on your... Just on the food thing, giant squid, the ammonia levels in it is so high that it's it's toxic. You can't actually eat it. So that's why I kind of reacted ah, the way I did okay. when they made that comment about I'm um, turning it into cat food. Cat like, food you'll be poisoning a lot of cats. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Look forward to next time already.
Okay. And uh, thanks also to Mary Isles and Cara Hull and uh, Dr. Rex Hunter. And thank you, Cabin Boy. Yes, go the megahertz. Go the megahertz. Big community competition of Radio Marinara, Radio Marinara next week. Thank you, Rachel, so much for panelling for us today. And uh, thank you to David who will have this show up as a podcast, as I mentioned next week. Big special community cup edition of Marinara. We'll have Ben Francis Shelley on the program. We'll also have Elodie Campras talking about that spider crab report. What have the spider crabs been up to over the last 12 months? And Mick Sowery talking about Great Ocean Quarterly, the Great Southern Reef edition. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. We'll catch you next week for more Marinara. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.